Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. So I'm going to start by reading from the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 1, verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered, that's Jesus, the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This is a dramatic story and it's the first event that we really experience of God coming out, uh, Jesus coming out from having uh, been baptised, John being arrested. He's out proclaiming the gospel and he declares that the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the good news. He's gathered a few disciples with him and then he rocks up at the synagogue so in verse 21, it's interesting that he goes to Capernaum. And if, uh, for those of you who don't know, in Galilee is like a sea. This is a, a, a fairly significant settlement in Jesus' day uh, on the coast. And uh, they suspect that it was around 10,000 people. So the synagogue itself was quite a, a, a sizable place. And it says that he entered into the synagogue and was teaching. And uh, it may sound as though Jesus just rocked up and immediately he took the stage and and no one really uh, was aware that this was going to take place, and he surprised them all and started preaching uh, without any reference to the leaders. But it's interesting that in Acts 13, for example, we do know that um, the leaders of the synagogue would control and uh, whoever got to speak from the pulpit. So Jesus, uh, even though it says here immediately this started to take place, uh, they actually do know who Jesus is. He's obviously been active around the area. But it seems as though this is the first time he's actually preached in the synagogue. And part of the reason I think that's evident is that they're astonished at his teaching. So in verse 22 it says, They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So you may be wondering who the scribes are. They're a part of the Pharisees, they are religious leaders, they're scholars, they're well versed in the law but it's making a contrast between the authority with which Jesus is speaking and what the scribes would do so what would they do? Well the scribes would always teach out of their tradition, in other words everything they said was always pointing to an elder or someone else that, uh, that came out of their tradition and they referred to their authority but Jesus stood up and he would speak on his authority, now we don't get it here in the Gospel of Mark but we do see it in the book of Matthew, which is, you know, where I was at. You, you may have heard Jesus say, I, I, you know, you've heard it said, but I tell you this. Well, that's Jesus actually taking authority and saying, this is how you interpret the scripture. So this is, we surmise, is what's going on here. In verse 23, it says, immediately there was a, in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. 
and he cried out. So I'd really love to know what Jesus was teaching at that point. Uh, it does say he was proclaiming the gospel of God. He was talking about the kingdom, but for some reason that obviously stirred up this unclean spirit that was in this man. And he cries out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So this is uh, a little bit confronting right now. It's, uh, clearly this man has been in a synagogue for some time. He's probably well known. And then he manifests his unclean spirit. And what's interesting about Mark's gospel and, and generally when it comes to things like deliverance is the person themselves actually remains anonymous. We actually don't know anything about him, really. He's called a man. That's, we just know his gender. That's it. And then it's as if the demon uh, that's in him is taking the, uh, the floor. So we don't know how this man ended up with this clone spirit. We don't know where he's come from. We just see this demon manifest. And what's fascinating about this demon is he actually, first up, recognizes who Jesus of Nazareth is and where he comes from. He knows he's from Nazareth, but that's actually not the concerning thing. There's three particular things about what he reveals. Firstly, he knows that he has nothing to do with Jesus. In other words, they're on opposite sides. The second thing, he says, have you come to destroy us? So somehow this unclean spirit is just assuming or is aware that this Jesus will bring about their destruction. And then on the third level, he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God, which is an interesting statement. They do say that uh, in this day, exorcists would uh, often try and figure out the name of a demon or an unclean spirit to take control of it. It's a bit like the demon's trying to do a bit of a reverse play on Jesus here, but uh, you'll soon discover that it really had no effect whatsoever. (laughs) But what's terrifying him is not that this Jesus um, is from Nazareth, his earthly origin, but he recognises that before him is standing the Holy One of God. Jesus' response is very interesting as well. He's very sharp. He's very terse. He doesn't entertain the unclean spirit. He doesn't respond. He doesn't question it. He just basically rebukes it and says, come out. And this is where all the crowd actually really are amazed because without hesitation and seemingly against this unclean spirit's will, boom, out it comes. Gone. I'm guessing it didn't want to go because it's made the man convulse and it's crying out. But it's gone immediately at the command of the Lord's word. And then verse 27, it says, They're all amazed, so they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. You know, I reckon if that happened in this house this morning, (laughs) some of us would probably find that a little confronting. I get no impression, though, here, that the crowd actually is amazed at this person and that he has an unclean spirit. (laughs) They're amazed at the authority that Jesus exerts over it. So not only is Jesus teaching with authority, but he's demonstrating his ultimate power and superiority simply by sheer command of his word. And because of that, his fame goes out throughout the region of Galilee. So here's his story that's at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. And essentially... The passage, the way the the passage is set out is to draw our attention to this exchange that's going on between Jesus and the unclean spirit. I think that's why the people who are possessed, essentially, um, or have this spiritual issue, 
are not named. Because in the context of what's going on, it's actually not that important. What's important to understand is that Jesus has come to confront the kingdom of darkness. We have all sorts of questions about, you know, where these things come from and how they are, but um, there's a bigger story going on at play here. And it's the first story of a, a bunch that is captured in verses 21 to 29 that introduce what it is for God to bring the kingdom from heaven on earth through Jesus, his Messiah. So if we track back a little and we look at this story and we say, why is this so significant and why has Mark put this at the front of his gospel and the first thing that happens in his ministry? Well, we get to track back to verses 12 and 13 in chapter 1. Now, I actually uh, did speak on verses 9 to 15 a few weeks ago, but I just have to leave this out for uh, time's sake. So I'm kind of pleased I get to revisit it. But as with uh, every word and verse that Mark has written, particularly in this introduction, we are being set up even uh, in these first few verses. And we can see how this confrontation between Jesus and the unclean spirit is starting to unfold the reality of the kingdom of God. So verse 12 says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Two verses, and very short, 30 words. Uh, We get very scant detail here. And you have to wonder why, when you look at Matthew again, and you look at Luke, they actually provide quite an extended uh, account of the wilderness experience. But Mark doesn't seem to include any of it. He's interested that it actually happened, but he doesn't really care, it seems, about what happened. So the question is, what's Mark doing? And why is he parked it here in the introduction? And if it's an important part of the way he's setting up his gospel, what's he saying? The interesting thing about these two verses is that the wilderness appears twice and from memory actually the wilderness never is uh, spoken of again throughout the whole gospel. The wilderness itself is also a crucial um, uh, metaphor or or allusion to Old Testament scripture. It conjures up um, the exodus from Egypt when they get out into the wilderness and uh, God's provision and it talks about in Deuteronomy that the wilderness was a place of testing. It says that I sent you and I kept you wandering around in the wilderness to test you to see whether or not you would keep the word in your heart to humble you. But more significantly perhaps for this uh, particular gospel is that the wilderness was, the, the, I guess, the preparing ground for Yahweh to come and bring victory over the evil one. So already, uh, for people hearing this story, they would have some awareness... Also from the preceding verses about Jesus being baptised, the heavens being torn and rent open, spirit coming upon him, the voice coming from the uh, heavens saying, you are my beloved. He was anointed for mission, he was identified as the son of God and then we have him being ushered out into the wilderness. The second interesting thing about this and what's been taking place here is the fact that Jesus actually appears quite passive. In other words, it's not saying that Jesus is doing anything. He just seems to be a participant. 
Rather, there's characters around it that seem to be active. So, one, the Holy Spirit driving him out into the wilderness. Two, there's Satan there. He's the one who's coming to tempt. The wilderness, I don't know what's happening with the wild beasts. They're just present. Maybe they're just observing, but a little terrified about the whole scene. But then there's the angels also who are ministering to. So we have on one side Satan and his wild beasts, on the other the Holy Spirit and the angels. Now if you think of the significance of the wilderness, Yahweh preparing the staging ground for his victory against the evil one, and then you look at this passage, you start to go, oh. Mark is actually bringing up, raising the level of our vision into the heavenly realm to help you understand that what's about to come is a clash not between flesh and blood. It's a clash in the heavenly realms. It's a cosmic battle. In fact, this is the way in which Jesus preached and taught about, and it's the way in which gospel writes his, his gospel. So if we pan back and we take a look at the broader gospel itself, it's actually very hard to understand the way the things like the exorcisms and the healings the miracles and the death on the cross all fit together. But when you park it under this umbrella of a spiritual war, this cosmic battle that's going on, that there is a clash of kingdoms coming, that God has come and he's confronting the kingdom of darkness, all of a sudden you start to see these things tie together. And this is something that developed through the Old Testament. It wasn't explicit. It was never at the fore. But between what we call the intertestamental period for those who are doing that course, uh, you'll get there at some point. But Malachi um, was supposedly the last of the prophets. He spoke at around 400 uh, BC. So in that period of time, there are certain circumstances that brought and intensified this understanding that uh, we are in, I guess, an age and an epoch where there is a kingdom that rules over this planet and it's hostile towards God, and it's hostile towards God's creatures. So that gives you a bit of a picture about what's going on, and, and you can see why the person who has the unclean spirit is anonymous. You can see why it's Jesus speaking directly to the demon, because actually the things that govern and rule this world are not as they always appear. Now, the trouble with this kind of verse, this scripture, is that you start to get uncomfortable when you bring it into the present. Everyone loves a good story as long as it stays in the past. <laughs> and even if I go through and I start to prove through scriptures the reality of the demonic and the unclean realm, the spirits, I, we can say, yeah, well, that's scripture, but in our hearts deny it, reject it. We can even mock and ridicule it. I mean, that's our culture. One of the difficult things about being raised in a Western culture is that unless you can taste, touch, smell, see or hear it, it's not real. Well, at least that's what we think. And that's the challenge. He says repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. One of the troubles we have, actually, is that we have a very carnal, very Western, very empirical way of thinking. And so... When we start talking about spirits and spirit realm and spiritual realities and these things having genuine influence over our lives, I don't know about you, but even that makes me a bit uncomfortable sometimes. <laughs> Nevertheless, if you want to understand the gospel, and more importantly, if you want to understand how to navigate the Christian life, 
it's something you're going to have to contend with. So I'm not going to try and prove you from Scripture. I thought at this point I'd actually tell you my story because I can tell you that I didn't actually believe what is written here because it is written. I believe what's written here is because I had an experience. My first one was an encounter with the Lord Jesus. And the second one I'm going to share with you today happened about eight years later. But it's interesting how one good experience can completely change your whole theology. (laughs) So I'm hoping in sharing this experience, it'll help you understand that um, what it is like to be dealing with the spirit realm and some of the things that can take place in a person's life. And it might encourage you to, uh, I guess, have some compassion and humility, (laughs) Um, but also recognize that these things are real. So back in 2008, I'm living uh, by myself in a home. It was, uh, it was the house of a, a grandmother through a family friend and she had unfortunately had to go to a, a home at that time. So I was there and I was looking after the house. I was actually renovating it. So my bed at that time was in the lounge room. It's one of those old uh, war homes where you walk in the front and you've got the lounge, the beautiful floorboards, the high ceilings, a couple of rooms to the right and the kitchen behind the lounge. And on one particular evening, I was tired as, you know, that's why you go to bed. <laughs> it seems pretty obvious. Um, I'm about to get into bed and I remember the Lord saying, said, get on your knees. He said, get on your knees. So I did. And he said, pray. And then he said to me, spirit of rejection. Came out of the blue. So I'm sitting there, I'm praying, I start speaking in tongues, and for those of you who don't believe in that, that's another story. Uh, <laughs> because I didn't know how to respond to that. I just started speaking in tongues, praying, and, and I found myself getting quite tense and choked, and after about 10 minutes, I was exhausted, and I thought, I can't deal with this. And I'm just thinking, I have to call Ross. Now, for those of you, um, well, most of you wouldn't know Ross, actually. Ross was very significant in my early years. He discipled me, and he, was, he had been a man um, who loved the Lord for about 45 years. Uh, incredible man of God, and he's the one who helped me bring this word alive, understand how to come into communion with God. So whenever I had a need or a challenge, I'm like, Ross, Ross is my triple zero number. So I, I thought, I need to call Ross, but being 9 o'clock at night, probably not a wise idea, so I thought I'd leave it to the next day, but I didn't. And I felt uncomfortable for the whole day. And for some reason, I just really resisted getting on the phone, even though my heart was yearning and aching to get him to come around and pray. So I went to bed again that night. And when I woke up in the morning, I went off to work, and Ross happened to call. And he said, I just want to come around and do a couple of things. Is that okay? And I said, inside, I'm going, yes. Um, so sure. So we, he rocks up at about 4 o'clock. And we sit down and I uh, said, do you want me to put the kettle on? He says, sure, because we all have a, always have a cup of tea and, and a chat. And I'm starting to feel quite anxious in myself. And, uh, and he said, what's going on? And I said, oh, I just started telling him about, I don't know why this is making me emotional. I just started telling him about what had happened. The Lord, I feel like he told me a, a, about a spirit of rejection. And um, so he goes, well, okay, let's pray. So I'm sitting down. He's over there and he stands up and he walks around he, puts his hand on me and as soon as he puts his hand on me I feel my chest constrict and my throat constrict and I'm starting to get really upset 
And he starts going to town. He's like, come out of them in Jesus' name. And he's praying against this thing. And, and we're only praying for a couple of minutes. But for me, it was a bit uh, confronting, as you can imagine. And then he thinks he's done and he sits down. And uh, I'm like, oh, okay. He says, okay, tell me what's going on. And I'm thinking, oh, I don't think this thing is done. So for some reason, he gets up and he walks around. And he, he stands on the other side of me and puts his other hand on. And boom, this thing hit my throat. Again, this strangling feeling, and he just put his other hand on, and he says, come out, and I felt this thing pop, and then my body just dropped. It felt like this thing, just whatever it was, just completely came out, and it was done. Two minutes later, I'm sitting there. I just see these angels descend in the room, and for the next 45 minutes... We're in the glory of God and worshipping him in his little house in Palmyra, in a, in a, you know, sitting with my good friend Ross, praising the Lord. And I just have, I can't remember having such a, a profound experience. I wanted to share that with you because I stand before you today as someone who's delivered my, from the power of the Lord Jesus. I'm nothing in myself, but the Lord is almighty. He is the one who redeems and saves. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the warrior. He is the lion of Judah. He is the one who raises the dead. His power is resurrection power. And yet we find this battle and we can find ourselves confronted with things. And if we don't own up to the fact that we are in a spiritual war, chances are we're going to miss it and we're going to struggle and we're going to find ourselves in things that are happening and really not identifying with it. But being having a, an unclean spirit in residence is a bit of a... <laughs> it conjures up a lot of fear for people. Because no one wants that. Much less do they want anyone to find out. I mean, that's... But we don't know how these things come in, really. I mean, there are some understandings that, you know, childhood wounds are one way that can happen. Uh, they can come through trauma, they can, uh, if you're foolish enough to delve in pornography or uh, illicit drugs or any manner of kind of sins, then you can open yourself up to being influenced by the demonic. But I want to give you a couple of lessons out of this whole process because I don't know if you recall, but it was eight years since I became a Christian and this happened. So the first question I guess one might ask... Is why eight years? How could he take so long? Like, I had to deal with this for eight years? Like, come on, couldn't you have done this a little quicker? It's a valid question. This is something that clearly the, the, the Lord doesn't desire, and yet why did he leave me in this space? Well, since pursuing the Lord, I found that actually the most important thing for him is you to be established in his love. That you know who you are, that you are a child of God. Because... These things, and, and uh, where it's problems with your soul or it's problems with your, your flesh or whatever it is, a lot of this is because we actually are so insecure and inferior in ourselves, feel inferior, that we have a very poor self-identity. And yet, we find it very hard to let it go because it's the only thing we've known. And in my experience and what I have witnessed in the Word and the way God's intent is, or at least His ideal, is that you would be established in Him and grounded in Him and you know His love, that you would be enveloped in His love. It says, somewhere I know that it says He shed His love abroad in our hearts. That love would actually be fooling your heart 
Because when you need to deal with sin in your life or other things, you're going to have to have someone to land when he rips something out of you that doesn't belong. You have to have that assurance that actually God loves you, that he will never leave you or forsake you, that he is your refuge and your fortress. You have to be able to land in him. So that's the first thing. Second thing that I learned, and I was very privileged to be born into a, a, a beautiful family, They'd seen all this stuff go awry. <laughs> people who get into deliverance ministry, people who get carried away with this stuff, and it can just really become a mess. And they said very early on, because it seemed that I had a, somewhat a little bit of a fascination about the whole thing, they said, keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't go pursuing it. The Holy Spirit is your counsellor. He's a master counsellor, I've found. No one can counsel like the Lord. He's perfect in his timing. He's so loving in the manner that he comes in. He manages to expose you to the things that terrify you about your inner self and yet at the same time, he brings a gift, a grace, a freedom. So you're not left exposed and open. He actually brings healing. It's like in the one swift move, he cuts out the cancer and he brings healing and restoration and wholeness all in the same act. So you don't have to worry about your life and and those things. You just have to pursue him. The third thing I want to talk about is discernment. Because I guess it brings up the question, how do we know? Now, don't go look at your neighbor or anything and think, oh, you've got a demon possession going on. That's not the point here. Uh, And secondly, we actually don't know. But the Holy Spirit does. And when he wants to do something or he wants to operate, it'll become obvious. But I think this is where when Paul talks about he wishes that everyone would prophesy, you'll notice that this whole thing started with the Lord speaking to me. It was a word of knowledge. It was identifying a particular spirit that I obviously had issue with, however that came into my life. And on that basis, I was able to actually have my friend deal with it. How do we get discernment? Well, Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is alive and active, dividing between spirit, soul, and body into the deepest parts of our nature. Discernment's not something you just get. Discernment's something you can actually grow in. But you need this in your life. I've got nothing against TV, but I will say that two hours of TV a night and two minutes in the Word's not going to cut it. I'm not saying that you have to because you're free. For freedom Christ set us free. He didn't put us in a bondage. I don't pursue this and get my... I don't pursue the word and I don't study it because I feel obliged to. I love it. I love it with all my heart. I love this book. For me, it's freedom. It's truth. With all the lies and rubbish that goes on in your life, all the promises that the world does, that we'll make, when I read Isaiah 55 and it says, well, you know, Anyone who's hungry or thirsty, come to me and buy, eat without money and without price. Take this milk and wine. It doesn't cost you anything. Why are you pursuing these things that do not satisfy you? Why do you run after things like that have no satisfaction? They're just bread. Come and incline your ear to me. Listen, and you will live. 
Eat from my table and you will eat rich delicacies. This word is a living word and it will penetrate to your heart and it will expose you to the sin in your life, but it will set you free and it will make you see clearly because no one wants to find out they've lived their life in a lie. You do not want to get to your 50s, 60s, 70s, discover that you've been deceived your whole life and you've been living a lie. I don't think there's anything worse. We all know that. If you've ever had a boyfriend or girlfriend prior to being married or if you're not married yet and they promise you the world and then one day they ring up or they give you a text. I don't know how they do it these days. It seems pretty... uh, Well, I won't go there. Everyone knows what it's to be on the tail end of being told you love the most precious thing and then they up and leave. Heartbreaking. The Lord says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the way. He is. So you keep your eyes on Him. Pursue Him. He'll not just put your life right. He'll start putting your family right. He'll put your relationship right. He'll put your work right. He'll put your health right. But you have to choose to pursue him. And if you want discernment, you want to understand, you know, what am I struggling with? Is it just because I'm passionate about something? Well, my flesh, it's these desires that I just don't seem to be out of control. Well, the Lord has given you the grace to submit your flesh, to crucify the flesh. Or is it coming out of your soul, the strongholds, the things that we've developed over our years, the ways of thinking that are actually wrong? Well, A, repentance means change the way you think. But a bit a little more deeply, it says recognize that the way you think is wrong. Well, how do we do that? Through the Word of God. He says that, and we have weapons of divine power. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We do not war with flesh and blood, but we have, we have weapons of divine power to demolish strongholds and to come up against every reasoning and lofty argument that comes up against the knowledge of God. Well, you're not going to know what those lofty reasonings and arguments are unless you know what the knowledge of God is. And that knowledge isn't just an intellectual understanding. It's a possession of the real living Word of God. And when you have it, you can see them coming. You can see when things are starting to lead you astray. You can see when things are trying to put you down. You can see when things are trying to make you feel shamed and guilty. But the Lord says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It says in Isaiah that He took our sin and shame on the cross. And these things are reality for your life that if you want to live in freedom, you need to possess and reject the things. Reject the things that come up against the knowledge of God. Because God is the authority in your life and what He says goes. And it can be as simple as going, you know what, my thinking stinks, but I can kick that to the side and I can pick this up and I can adopt a whole new way of thinking. And I can be set free. Romans 12 talks about the need to be renewed daily in your mind. I guess I've moved into a place here now where there's probably two primary ways in which the spirit, unclean spirit, spiritual issues come about. One is the unconscious, where we, through childhood or whatever, we can have, like I did, a spirit that somehow finds a foothold in your life. I'd have to say that's the only one I've had to deal with, thank the Lord. (laughs) 
I've had a couple other things that have been quite confronting that I've had to really learn to fight against and stand my ground. I won't talk about that now. That's probably another day. But perhaps the more common way we experience spiritual warfare, people call it spiritual attack, is actually with the mind. We get assaulted. Assaulted daily. And sometimes we're, we're so numb to it, we just play the radio, play the TV, see the news, because we've just become oblivious to it. And yet, they tell you that you need to stack up, you need, you're worthless, that this world's going to a hell because we're all, whatever problems we have, we can't solve it, and then we can solve it. it they tell you that basically your life is in ruin. That you're not accepted, that you don't belong. Take your pick, whatever you want to, however you want to beat yourself up. (laughs) There's plenty of ways to do it. I've had a number of sticks in my time that I've whipped myself with. It's critical that you actually learn how to renew your mind and take authority. Second, that, that passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 goes on to say to bring every ca- thought and imagination into the captivity of Christ. This is a tool. You actually have been given the power to bring your mind into submission and the devil doesn't have to be chatting in your ear all day telling you what worthless piece you are or inciting anger in you or getting agitated or telling you things are going to go wrong. You can actually bring those thoughts into captivity if you choose. Because he's given it to us here. He's given us the power and the tools. His grace is the fact that it's not just... Unfortunately, sometimes I think people have a very narrow view of grace (laughs) that you're just free to carry on your life and you'll get to heaven regardless. I know we don't talk about it like that here. Grace is the empowerment to do what you cannot do by yourself. God's grace extends to all of us in abundance, lavishly. He lavishes his grace upon us. As a parting word, I just want to finally say, if you're struggling with stuff in your life, it can be humiliating. But the devil will want you to stay in that darkness, stay in that place, find a trusted friend. Find a, that's what the pastors are for. Go and seek someone out. You need to find someone you can trust to start dealing with this stuff. If you're struggling with just battling in your mind, if you feel like you've just got things that you're not overcoming or whatever it is, don't declare it to the world. <laughs> Don't put it on Facebook. Don't tweet about it. Just get someone that you know that is trustworthy, that that will take care of your heart and lead you gently toward healing. I'm going to pray for you and we're going to worship. But I'll have you know that the, the Lord Jesus is the author and perfecter of your faith. And when you give yourself to him, he says he will continue to perfect and develop and grow the very thing he started in you when he revealed himself to you and said, you're my child now, you're mine. He takes hold of you and he takes responsibility for your maturity in the faith. 
that doesn't absolve you from actually exercising a little bit of discipline toward those things that help, like praying, getting into the Word. But when you give yourself to this stuff, His grace is there to meet you at every moment, to empower you and to make you become and to walk into the fullness of the person you were intended to be before God, that you might say one day that you walk before the Lord in the land of the living and you can declare His glory and you can say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power unto salvation. Praise the Lord. Pray with me. it is, Lord, to stand before you. To be able to testify of your redemption, the power of the cross. I don't care that it is foolishness in the world. It's the only power that can deliver us from sin. It's the only power that can conquer sin and darkness, Lord. And I know your word's gone forth this morning and you've spoken to your people. And I pray that you would seal in the hearts the things that you've spoken to them, that you have given them a way out, that you will set them free, that you are a liberator. You're the only one who can truly set people free. And for those who are yearning for freedom, Lord, I know that you meet them. Grant them hope this morning and grace. Let their hearts be filled with your love. Let them know that their heavenly Father looks upon them with tenderness, with a passionate and pure love, that they would not just be children of God, that they would become sons and daughters of God, mature in the faith and mature in reflecting the nature of Christ in this life, that they might be a pleasure both to you and bring glory to your name. Thank you.